This morning we have yet another guest, and, 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 and the name on this gift is called Reverend Jeff Barnison. Thanks, Elder. <laughs> okay. He said, he said I could keep talking. Now, I remember when this young man uh, first came into this church. And he was, I don't, you weren't married yet, were you? Are we, newly married, newly married, newly married. No boys. And what I want to say is this, that um, it's, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege to get to know uh, Reverend Jeff over the many years. And, um, and, and, it's, and it's even better than being able to say, uh, I've got a new friend, is to be able to say, I got a brother. Brother. <laughs> Amen. Can't you see the resemblance? <laughs> Thank you, Elder. Morning, church. Well, here we are. Um, it's been an interesting week in our home. I won't take time to talk about it right now because I see I've only got about 28 minutes before the Sunday school kids get released. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right to it with the uh, reading of God's Word. From John chapter 14. And if you'd like to flip to it in your Bible or your electronic device or look up at the screen, it'll be up there also. Now, the, the text we'll be reading is from John 14, uh, the first 20 verses. And you might recall that this is, um, this is the time in Jesus' life when he's uh, about to be crucified. It's the night before he'll be crucified. He's with his disciples. And so he's telling them this stuff, and um, you, you kind of think if you, were, if you were speaking to your friends the last time you'd see them for a while, you'd say certain things. You'd, you'd, there'd, there'd be a certain weight to the things you'd say. You wouldn't waste time. You wouldn't, wouldn't waste words. So he's, he's laying down some important, um, some important things that they'll need to carry on, and I think that we will as well. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who, who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We receive this word, God, and I pray for your Spirit's blessing on it, that we might not miss anything you have for us today. Clarify the things that are confusing and open our hearts to new paths of obedience as we run after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to, um, before we start talking about this text and our topic this morning, I'd like to make a couple comments about um, community and present to you two models of community. And I don't know if we've done this here before or not, but um, if, it's, if it's been done before, this will be review. But check this out, okay? Most of the time, when we think of community, we think of community like this. Community. Community. So there's, in a community, there's, there's people in the community, people outside the community, right? There's insiders and outsiders, insiders and outsiders. And um, so this is, this is the usual way we think about community. So if you, um, if you like the Red Sox and the Patriots and the Bruins, I'm sorry, um, um, you're in this community, if you're, if you're here generally. If you like the Yankees and the Islanders, the Giants, you're not in this community, Right? 
There's insiders and outsiders. Um, there's insiders and outsiders professionally. There's lawyers and there's doctors. Or there's doctors that are inside. And there's, or there's academics. Or there's teachers. Or there's hospital employees. Or there's food service workers. Different kinds of associations that are, that are similar or not. Um, so there's insiders and outsiders. And the thing that distinguishes um, whether you're an insider or outsider is the border. The border. That tells you whether you're an insider or outsider. The definition of the border. The boundary condition. And um, so this is called a closed set. And I want to say that, and since we're in a, in a, in a congregation today, there's kind, of a, there's kind of a boundary here. You know, there's walls around this place. Um, and so there are theological communities and theological boundaries as well. And so um, we can find ourselves, for, for better or worse, in the position of evaluating who gets to come into our community, right? Uh, virgin birth. Uh, agree? Str str strongly agree? Disagree? Un unsure? Substitutionary atonement? Agree? Strongly agree? Disagree? So th there's different things we think about. Mode of baptism, immersion, sprinkling, I don't know. You know there's, there's different things that we, we might want to, and, and so we become concerned about this boundary. Who's in and who's out on the basis of, of what these tests are. There's another way to think about community that looks like this. I'll draw it over on the other side. This is called a center set. And the center set, well, you're not as concerned about this, but you're concerned about what's at the center. Now, if this is a congregation, if this is PT, I mean, we'd say, you know, Jesus is at the center of this thing too, right? We're just trying to understand what it means to know him and follow him in this place. But, so if this is Jesus over here, what do you notice about, what's the difference in these two communities? It's kind of scary, huh? <laughs> kind of scary. There's no boundary condition. It's like, who's in? Who's out? Um, and, uh, well, this will, this will get to something in a few minutes. You'll see. But before I move on to, to sort of talk about what, what we're going to get to today, um, one way to think about this is not, is not, who's in, who's out, but the proximity of people. So are they close? Are they far away? You know, are, are, they, are they close? You know, so you might say, here's, uh, here's Elder Roy right there. <laughs> Very close. Um, and, and so there's some that are further away, and so you, you words to that, how close they are to the center, how close they are in this case to Jesus, how close they are to God. But we're also, we can also show something else in this thing about community this way, and that is what way the, the dot is going. And so you might have somebody that's very close inside here that's, their vector's pointing away, they're getting out of town, moving away. There might be somebody over here where the vector's aiming right toward Jesus. And so we want to nurture that. So, 
So the job of this in this community is to articulate a strong center to show to have gravitational pull toward the center. The job on this side is managing the boundary, like worrying about, you know, who's in and who's out, you know. And so I'm inside here and they're saying, come on in, the water's great, you know, believe in this, this, this. And I can, I can become confused with what I'm actually doing and not articulate the strong center. I think both of them are necessary. Both kinds of communities are necessary, different times. But today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on this kind of community over here and what it means to articulate a strong center. And I do this today because there's a time, well, we're in an age now where the, the center is, is kind of drifting. The boundaries, I mean, if there's boundaries, they're very permeable. We're not sure what the boundaries are. And uh, I think rearticulating a strong center is, is important today, but it's also been true historically, and the church has had to do this again and again and again. And we'll talk about one occasion where they did that um, several hundred years ago. So, closed set, center set. Let me just say one other thing about this. That in the first chapter of Mark... You might remember Jesus is walking by the seashore, and he's going along by the seashore, and he sees these guys with their nets. It was uh, Peter and, and Andrew, if I remember correctly. And he says, uh, follow me. Follow me. And do you remember what they did? It says they left their nets and followed him. It says they were fishermen. You know, So they left that identity, and Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So he redefined their whole thing. They left an identity, they got a new identity. But there's no theological conversation there at all. All that matters was that the Andrew Dot and the Peter Dot were close enough to Jesus to sort of get some traction. So I think a lot of times what we need is proximity and touch to have an impact. Okay. So... Um, Here's a map of what we're going to try to do today. Uh, and I'll just say this. Bishop says, and whenever the bishop says something like, hey, Jeff, will you be here on April 10th? <laughs> the right response is, maybe. <laughs> I did not say that. So you're going to have to help me today. Um, bishop asked me to speak to you about the Holy Trinity. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a subject. And what should we do? How should we talk about the Holy Trinity? And um, so I know that some of you have been reading and, and doing some study on, on theological topics. So I'm just going to pick up where some of you have been working uh, already, but I'm going to introduce some new ideas as well. So I'd like to start with a definition of the Holy Trinity. And um, after that, we'll take a look at Scripture. I'm going to give a little history lesson. I want to talk about why it matters. Why, why does it matter that we, that we understand God as shown to us in Jesus, as triune? And what are the implications? Okay? So that's the agenda we have in 15 minutes. Okay? It's going to be challenging. Okay. So... Um, 
the definition, the Trinity, and I'll give you a simple one, and I'm glad to pass along these notes to you afterwards if you want to, if you don't want to write it down, just want to listen, that's fine too. But to me, um, and helpful to me that I, you know, I've heard in seminary and, and for many years, is that God is three persons and one essence. Three persons and one essence. And secondly, that the persons, the persons are each fully and eternally God. Fully and eternally God. And that each person is distinct. Those three features. God is three persons, one essence. That each is fully and eternally God. And each person is distinct. Well, why do we say this? Well, it's not because we're trying to make up some kind of a system to work things out. All of these things come from Scripture and the lived experience of God's people over time. And so um, it, it wasn't like we, let's sit down and try and figure out a confusing way to sort of make up a story about how God might be. But it's, it's, it's what the Scripture has shown us, what Jesus believed, how Jesus spoke to his Father and what the lived experience was of, of God's people over generations, that we get these ideas. And so the starting place, I want to just say, is, is this first concept that God is one. And this is where it begins, a wholehearted commitment to the conviction that there is one and only one God. This is true in ancient Israel. It was true for the, the Jews of Jesus' day. And it's true today. And this, back in the day, this was despite the fact that all of these folks were immersed in a polytheistic culture. They, were, they lived in a time when people believed all kinds of different things. And, and there were all kinds of deities. They were surrounded by people who believed differently. In the face of that, they claimed what we read in Deuteronomy 6.4. They said, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ichad, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And they declared that every time they prayed, that God is one. And the Jews, Jesus prayed that prayer. And his disciples prayed that prayer as well. A second text, I'll just say, this is going to be like a little Bible drill um, as we go through some of these. A second text also from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.35 says, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. There's no other God. He is one, the only one. The Lord alone, there's one God, and he is our God, is the implication. Isaiah 45, 5-7 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen the, you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. There's one God, and he reigns over all people, and he's active. Isaiah 46, 9 
says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. There's no other God. There's none like him. He's the only one. He declares it again and again and again and again. Not just in the Old Testament, not just in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the New Testament too. James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shake. The New Testament affirms that God is one. So, might seem kind of basic, but this is the starting place. We start here. There's one God and no others are like him. They're not even close. One God, unique. So, if this is true, I mean, I guess we could stop and worship right there for a while. Um, If this is true, then who's Jesus? There's one God. Who's Jesus? How does he... How does he fit into this? This was the question for the followers of Jesus for the first 300 years after Jesus. Who is he? Jesus is God. We know he's God. He did the kind of things that only God can do. But if God is one, how is Jesus God? How does that work? What he said, what he did, how he fulfilled the scripture, it proves he's God. So they did not have all the details worked out. And my my seminary professor, Bruce Shelley, used to say, he'd say, they were Trinitarians, but they didn't have Trinitarian theology. (laughs) It's like, you can enjoy the beach without knowing how light works. Um, And so I can drive my car without understanding much about how my car works actually these days so so they were they were functioning trinitarians we could say but they didn't understand and and maybe we don't either but who is jesus well these early followers of his affirmed and we affirm and the scripture affirms as well that jesus is god john 17 3 says this now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The only true God, Jesus Christ, he's the one that can give eternal life. And so they affirmed at the very beginning, this is eternal life. He is God and can give eternal life. Nobody can give eternal life except God. Or 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Paul says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. Through whom all things came. Who can create the universe but God? Or John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Everything that's made, everything that exists, was somehow 
mysteriously made through him. All things made. It picks up on Genesis 1, uh, you know, verses 1 and 26, where, um, you know, God says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in 26, he says, let us, let us make human beings in our image. Maybe it's a clue. John 8, 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I'm sorry, before Abraham was born, I am. And Bishop, uh, he referred to this uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, where Yahweh, Yahweh is I am. Before Abraham was, Yahweh. And, you know, when they're listening to Jesus, they're saying, well, Abraham was, you know, born like 2000 B.C. You know, how does this work with you? But he was making a theological claim that he's somehow related intimately to Yahweh. Or Mark 2, 5 through 11. You know the story about the guy whose, whose friends bring him uh, to Jesus because he can't walk? And they actually, if you read it, Mark, they actually take apart the house. They take apart the roof. And it's, it's probably Jesus' house, actually, because it says Jesus was at home. And so could be this Jesus' house that's getting messed up. But um, it says in, in Mark 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? That's that's not unreasonable. You know, they're they're saying truth, right? <laughs> Only God can forgive sins, right? We all agree. Um, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that it was, this is what they're thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. Jesus forgives the sins of the paralyzed man. God is one. Jesus is God. Okay, well, what about the Holy Spirit then? How does does the Holy Spirit fit with this mix? Well... There's all kinds of references in the Old Testament. We're just going to look at, at the New Testament today. Acts 5, 3 through 4. And this is the occasion where the early followers of Jesus were selling their property. They were bringing the, the proceeds and laying them at the disciples' feet so that they could be used for the ministry. And just, you know, they lived very simply and shared everything. Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? See, Ananias and Sapphira had sold their property and they presented this money as if it was the wholesale. But they kept back part of it because they wanted to hit Starbucks occasionally, have some spending change, some walking around money. And um, so he says, why, why have you held back part of it? While it remained unsold, did 
did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. It says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to God. Not lied to men, but to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God because the Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? You are a temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you in the same way that God dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem is what the comparison is. A couple more. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Christ offers himself through the eternal Spirit. And so the Spirit, Jesus treats the Spirit as he treats the Father, as he treats God. He refers to him as God. The apostles refer to the Spirit as God. There's a couple passages that refer to them all together. And these are your, these are your go-to passages if you're wondering still. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We could probably say this in unison. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The baptism isn't just in the Father. It isn't just in the Son. It isn't just in the Spirit. It's in all three, because all three, all three persons are eternally God, distinct and eternally God. Um, lastly here, Second Corinthians 13, 14, and this is a benediction we say. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The blessing of God in Trinitarian language. Okay, so we could multiply these verses. We keep on reading verses and you'll all go to sleep because it's, it's hard to hear these verses again and again, but there's so many of them, it's hard, it's hard to... Um, to sort of cover them all. But the Bible is filled with these references. And so one thing that can be an outcome today is that our eyes might be tuned to sort of recognize some of these um, as we uh, notice them in, in God's Word. It's 9.30, and I'm going to let the kids go off to Sunday school. So I've got some more. So if you're heading out, you'll have to get the video at 10. So lots of smart people had these texts for a long time. Um, I didn't just discover these uh, this week. They've been around for a long time. And it's, it's hard to know what, what sense to make of some of these things. And so when there came a time in the church's history to clarify this, 
they had a council in 325 A.D. in a place called Nicaea. And they, they came together to, to say affirmatively once and for all how to speak about God's character, how to speak about who God is in his essence. And it wasn't they're making up something new. They weren't, they weren't creating something new. They were just trying to affirm and nail it down because different ideas were starting to creep in. And so at this time, there was a dispute. There were two different ideas that were represented that were different from what we think of as orthodox. And they're related to who Jesus is. And the first was, was purported by a guy named Sibelius. And Sibelius said that God takes different forms at different times. And so sometimes he looks like a spirit. Sometimes he looks like a son. Sometimes he looks like a father. He takes these different things. But he's not, he's not all those things at the same time because, well, nobody can do that. So he, he just takes under, and they call this modalism. And the uh, the church fathers, the bishops said, no, 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 that's not that's not how it works. Because I mean, how would that work? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying to his Father. He's being sustained by angels and by the Spirit. Or, or um, the problem, you know, it says in First John four sixteen that God is love. Well, if, if they aren't always together, how can God be love? Because there would have been a time when there was only one entity that's God. You know, nobody to love. And so you've got to have three to have a, a community where there's real love. And so um, that, that wouldn't work either. So they, they rejected Sibelius' idea. Then there was the idea that Arius put forward. And Arius, the Arian idea was that, well... God the Father always existed, um, and Jesus was just the first thing that he created. Or the Son, not even Jesus. The Son was the first thing he created. And um, so that's where he came from. But that has the same problem. There would have been no community eternally. God, There would have been a time when God was not love, because God was by himself. And so they rejected that idea as well. And so... There was a bishop named Athanasius who said that the Son is of the same nature, the same essence, homoousios, the same essence as the Father. And that's what their statement was. And that served them well for about 50 years. But then in, in, they didn't know what to do about the Spirit. And so they hadn't really nailed down, well, how does the Spirit relate to all these things? And so they had to meet again. So they came back and they met in Constantinople in 381 to settle a dispute over the spirit. And a bishop named Basil, who became known as Basil the Great, was a name he was given. It wasn't his self-name. Um, but Basil the Great and Gregory of, of Nazansus and Athanasius again led the clarification over the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we get, that's where we get the statements we have today. That God is one, God is three persons, God is eternally three persons, and God is distinctly three persons, in perfect unity eternally. So, that's what the definition of the Trinity is, and a little bit about the history of it. So, I want to take just a few more minutes and apply it to this text we looked at in John 14. And, and so, this is like the so what part. Like, what difference does this make? Does it really matter? Does it really, does it really um, help us understand who we are and who God is? 
Well, in John uh, 14, 1 to 20, I'm just going to get my copy of the text here out again so I can refer to it exactly. Um, Here we are. Okay. Because God is triune, we can know God in a very particular way. We can know God. And in, in verses 7 through 10, uh, we're reminded that, that Jesus um, said to his disciples gathered there, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So, if we know Jesus, we know the Father. If we don't know Jesus, we don't know the Father. It's the way we know God. If, if God was not triune, if God was not three persons in one, we would not know the Father in the same way we do because we know Jesus. Second, second value um, that comes from understanding the Trinity and, and um, God's uh, character as triune is that we can participate in the mission of God. Verses 11 and 12 in chapter 14, Jesus says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to my Father. And Jesus goes to his Father so that the ministry can flourish, so that greater things can happen than would happen if he stays. That only makes sense if God is triune. If he doesn't go, the ministry doesn't grow in the same way. Third thing, we can celebrate the glory of God in a different way because God is triune. Verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it if you keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So there's something that happens that, that God gets greater glory in a community that gets represented um, in his church and through us than he does by him if, if he's just one entity because of answered prayer and the obedience of his people. Lastly, we can experience the companionship of God. Verse 16 through 20, he says this. This is really beautiful. I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
I will come to you. Jesus saying, I will come to you. I'm not sending somebody else, some other strange spirit. I'm going to come back to you as the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you always. And so when we're thinking we're all alone, nothing's going to happen, it's not true because Jesus has come back in the Spirit to be with us always. He says, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, that you are in me, and I am in you. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm not sure which of these, which of these pieces um, make the most difference for you today, whether it's knowing God in a new way or participating in God's mission or celebrating and worshiping God in a new way or knowing God's companionship. But we're never alone. I will come to you, and we'll all be together in this uh, community of the Trinity. So um, I just want to pray for us, and, and perhaps there's just some others that would, would join in, in sentences of prayer as well, just in gratitude and worship that we get a clue into how God really is in the world, and how he really is, because if he hadn't shown us, we wouldn't have a clue. This is all by his revelation. So I'm going to pray, and then if any of you would like to say a sentence or two of prayer, of just a praise to our triune God, shout it out, okay? So thank you, God, that you have made yourself known, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are more amazed than we can even say. We don't begin to understand all that this means and all the benefits that are ours because of your glory. But we do pray that you would make it more and more clear that you would enable us to trust you more and more fully, that you would enable us to lean into our relationship with you. Because you are the three-in-one, we believe in you and we trust in you, the three-in-one God. We praise you. Praise you, Lord. Praise you.
Thank you. Thank you, God, for welcoming us into the mystery of a relationship with you, coming and living inside us, ransoming us, freeing us from sin, for creating and recreating us anew. And God, I want to thank you for these um, pastors and bishops and others who centuries ago loved you and your words so much and lived faithfully in your presence and worked diligently on these questions that might help us all these generations later. God, I praise you and thank you for them. For Athanasius, for Basil, for Augustine, for these saints who pursued you the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that you would give us courage and clarity to do the same. Thank you for these minutes in your word, God. I pray that your spirit would continue to have your way in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.